0: Astronomers tell us that when we look into the night sky and see the light from stars, it is light that has taken light years to reach us because of the great distance that lies between us and the stars. FYI, a light year is roughly 10 trillion kilometers. That's a large distance. In fact, the star could, be, or could have been plunged into darkness a year ago and its light would still be shining towards the earth. It would be shining in the sky tonight as brightly as if nothing had happened. It could be a dead star shining solely by the light of a brilliant past. You see, the church at Sardis was like that. It had a name, but it was dead. It was shining solely by the light of a brilliant past. We've been doing a series on the, on the seven churches Mentioned in the book of Revelation, where our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ has a message. He has a review of each of these seven churches. And the messages to each of these churches still apply to churches today and to individuals today. We started at Ephesus, and today we'll be covering the church at Sardis. Every letter that is penned down to the churches starts with a greeting. And a character highlight of who Jesus Christ is. It also usually has a commendation, something good to say about the church, uh, a condemnation, uh, you know, a call to improve itself, and a promise or a, a reward at the end. This is a church that hears a condemnation right off the bat from Jesus Christ. Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet, you have still a few names in Sardis, a people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Father, we thank you, O oh Lord God, for this wonderful opportunity where we can come before you and before your word and hear what you have for us today. We pray, O oh Lord, that all distraction would be taken away, that our hearts will be prepped and our ears would be attentive. We pray that your Spirit move Amongst us and within us, O Lord, we pray that in all that is to be said today, that your word alone be preached and you be brought glory in Jesus Christ's precious and holy name. So as I mentioned, the letter starts out like every other letter, with a character highlight of our Lord. All these character highlights to every church refer back to chapter one in Revelation, where Christ is described here we see the words of Him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. In one mighty hand, the Lord held the seven spirits of God. Now you might wonder, at the seven spirits of God, like, what's this all about? It would be better to be said the sevenfold spirit. A number of perfection, completion. In fact, when we look at the Old Testament in Isaiah 11 verses 2, we actually see this defined for us where in Isaiah 11:2 it says and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him the spirit of wisdom and understanding the spirit of counsel and might the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord these seven characteristics it is in one hand that Jesus proclaims himself as the one who holds the seven spirit the sevenfold spirit and on the other the seven stars And for those of you who have been here for the previous sessions, the seven stars represent, each star represents the leader of each of these churches. So the seven stars, seven leaders. And here is a picture of Christ who has all authority over the church. And a picture of Christ who is the perfect judge. And God is the judge of all the earth. He has scales that are finely adjusted into which he puts men, nations, and churches in order to weigh their action. The church of Sardis was put on the scale and was found extremely wanting. The church is to be weighed against all that is implied by the sevenfold Spirit of God. It is weighed and measured to see if its holy character can stand the test? Does it come up to its heavenly calling? What has she done with the Holy Spirit, the, the awe-inspiring presence of God that dwells with her? Christ, Scripture says, has put the church and has seated the church in heavenly places. Is Sardis living up to that? Or has she traded heavenly things for earthly things? Christ goes on to say, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. You know, we are reminded over and over again that our Lord sees and knows everything. What is done in secret, what is done in public. He knows our every thoughts, words, actions, inclination, attitudes of our hearts he knows your current state right this moment and the actions and the attitudes and testimony of the church at sardis is an open book to the omniscient lord and nothing is hid from his searching gaze things which are not visible to man are perfectly apparent to him he says you have a reputation reputation with whom With men, they have a reputation, but before the Lord, he knows what is the true measure. One of the most harshest words to ever hit a church is that it's dead. The church, which is supposed to be the antithesis of being dead, we who were once dead have been made alive. We who are to be the light of the world, we who are to be the ambassadors of of the life-giving gospel, we who have been granted eternal life, we who have been given His living word, we who have been given His life-giving spirit to be called dead by our Lord is an enormous blow to any church. The church at Sardis had forgotten the magnitude of its heavenly calling. It had forgotten the magnitude of its holy character. How would you feel, brothers, sisters, if you were to hear that from the Lord, that you were dead? Ponder on that. You see, the city of Sardis was a a military stronghold in antiquity. It was perched on Mount Timolus. And Sardis had a reputation of being impregnable, though in fact it had been actually conquered twice in history, and we'll cover that in a bit. Higher ground is always a preferred defensive spot. You, you go to any army, they'll always say the higher ground is, is the best place to be if you want to defend something. This was perched, the city was perched on a cliff. And on the, on the flip side, Sardis was rich in gold and its stonework reflects excellent craftsmanship. Expert masonry techniques are evident in the Acropolis wall and in tombs throughout the the area. So here's a picture, a well-protected city. Same time, a place of prosperity. And the church in Sardis is largely mirrored in the community. You see them... uh, having a sense of overconfidence. They're rich. They're preoccupied and off guard. See, we, when we look and we read through this letter to the, the church of Sardis, Christ doesn't highlight them tolerating Jezebel or the Nicolaitans or the followers of Baal or experiencing persecution. Rather, it would seem that the church has steadily become so apathetic and lethargic that it had died to the point that Jesus says, you have works, I see them, but they are not complete before God. The church embraced mediocrity. Jesus knew of the church's activities, programs, but instead of being impressed by the liveliness visible to those on the outside of their past reputation, he proclaimed the church as dead. In God's eyes, all that remained was a tastefully decorated corpse. Jesus declared that all the church services, its traditions, its religious activities and ceremonies did not prove the church's life, but instead reflected spiritual decay. You see, despite the city's Paganism, the Christian community there, seems to have experienced no persecution and hence no spiritual life. Why would Satan or the world persecute a dead church? Why would it? Why would it? And I think it's important for us to keep this in mind. When I was going through this, you know, we live in a very safe country. We are blessed to be here. We live in a prosperous country. State and time. And I think it's important for us to look at this letter and, and see, are there comparisons? Is there a danger here? Our government takes very good care of us. You can ask our brother Jason, he will tell you. It takes very good care of us. So we become very confident. These are the five commands that Christ gives a dead and dying church. And it follows right after this. It says, Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. So what's the first one? wake up. I love our Lord. See, he doesn't just leave it as saying, you're dead. No, he says, here are the steps to come back. There is still an opportunity. Wake up. What does that mean? Wake up. Well, you can't be indifferent. You can't just lie around and let go, cross your hands and watch from the sidelines. Obviously, this is a call to reverse the current attitude and the current attitude must be what? It's, it's sleep. They're just sort of hanging around in sort of a daze. If you want life, you need to wake up. That's the idea. Wake up. Be alert. Look what's happening. Evaluate. See where you are. Care. Care. Get involved. He's calling to the believers and saying, come on, wake up. Make a difference. It's like Christ grabbing you by the collar, slapping you and saying, wake up. Every time the phrase wake up is used in the New Testament, it conveys the notion that God's people are spiritually asleep when they should be awake. Jesus uses a very effective metaphor here. In the physical realm, when we are asleep, we are unconcerned, apathetic, and indifferent. Unfortunately, the same can be true in the spiritual realm. Many Christians have dozed off, and they don't even know it. And they are in need of an abrupt wake-up call. You see, when I'm at home, um, I have an uh, alarm clock to ensure that I'll get up each morning. Uh, It's on my nightstand, and sometimes when I'm really exhausted and I really have to be somewhere, I put a second alarm clock, it's actually my second phone, and I put it somewhere far off that makes me get up off of bed, otherwise my wife's going to beat me up if I don't keep that thing dozed. <laughs> and, and, and when I think of this in a spiritual sense, I like to envision this as an opportunity to ask ourselves, what's our alarm clock? What's going to get us to wake up? The first one's the Word of God. It's simple and and, and plain and true. The spirit wakes us up when we read the word of God. You know, the word here to wake up is then to be watchful once you're, you know, awoken. And Jesus wants his church to be awake. And you see that theme over and over again. And what's our, and I think if you were to ask yourself, what's the second alarm clock? And I would say, it's all of you. You're my second alarm clock. You know, brother and sister, to come alongside me and say, wake up. And our attitude when someone who takes the courage to come up to you and say, you know, I want to talk about a certain action, a certain word, a certain attitude... I want to walk alongside you and, and provide some guidance. And I know for many of us, when you're sleeping and someone tries to wake you up, you're like, mm, get away from me, get away from me, don't, don't irritate me. But that's your second alarm clock. Be glad that someone has come by your side and said, wake up. Now, see, some people might like to take a glass of water, throw it in your face. Some might be gentle, but hey, but just Be glad. Be glad that we have a second alarm clock that's each one of us. Secondly, our Lord says and calls the church to strengthen what remains. See, there are a few left, the embers of a dying flame. Christ commands the listeners to become spiritually alert in response to their dead condition and in becoming watchful to strengthen the things that are about to die. See, the church is asked to, to what, what do you mean strengthen? When you think of the word strengthen, reinforce, encourage, edify. Think of this. You're in bed, you're asleep. You get rudely awakened by, I know it doesn't happen here, but gusty winds. <laughs> and you get off the bed, open the window, and you see a tornado far off. Well, we don't have experience with tornadoes. But you say, okay, I need to get in the, into the basement. I probably need to kind of board up my windows, strengthen some fortifications in the home. You're, the moment you're awa- woken up, you need to be vigilant and say, okay, what needs to be done? What's the, what are the bare minimums? What's about to die? In, in the Middle East, we had the, the Gulf War. I was a, a kid, and, a kid and, and, and what I remember was the windows always being taped by my parents, And so later on, I realized that the reason why was if there was a missile that wouldn't hit and there was an explosion, the glass would shatter. It wouldn't fly everywhere. So they're strengthening that. It's the same kind of attitude here. Wake up from your slumber. Be attentive. Like, this is a serious situation. Strengthen. Do you see a brother who's struggling? Strengthen the brother. Do you see a ministry that needs assistance? Provide assistance. Do you see people who need to hear the gospel? Preach the gospel. Strengthen what remains. Once you wake up. Then he says, remember. Remember, remember the Lord, our Redeemer. He's always, ever calling our wandering thoughts and affections back to himself. You know, his last act before he went to Calvary was to institute a feast of remembrance. We, we partook of that this morning. A, re- a remembrance to draw us back to himself again and again and again during our life on the earth. John Newton, author of some of our loveliest hymns like Amazing Grace, was plagued in his unconverted days by a very treacherous memory On three separate occasions, God spoke to him, and each time he forgot. He sank lower and lower until living a wild and decadent life on the high seas and in the far corners of the globe. He sank so low that he actually became, for a while, the slave of a slave. Two women prayed for John Newton, and their prayers never ceased. These prayers that pursued him down the Spanish Isle Around the Horn of Africa, across the seven seas, in fair weather and foul, through calm and howling hurricane, those prayers like the hounds of God kept hard upon his heels. Then suddenly, in the midst of a fearful storm, with the deck heaving beneath his feet and death grasping his shoulder, John Newton was converted. He left the sea and he, and he went into the ministry but over the mantelpiece in his peaceful study, thereafter there stood guard a significant text. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. Deuteronomy fifteen, fifteen: You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. John Newton said that after his conversion, he never could forget again. On the deck of that sinking ship, ship, the, the Lord seemed to look into the very soul. And he wrote this. John says, sure, never till my latest breath can I forget that look. It seemed to charge me with his death, though not a word he spoke. Do you know what the Lord has redeemed you from? Do you know what the Lord has redeemed you from? Do you remember the shackles? Do you remember the weight of the sin that you carried? Do you remember where you were to to end up in? Complete separation? Do you remember the despair Do you remember who you were in the eyes of our Lord? We deserved to be condemned. Yet our Lord has shown us such kindness and grace. Christ calls the church to remember when you are confronted with the sevenfold spirit of God, We're called to remember. And Jesus says, so wake up, strengthen, which is damage control, remember, and he says, keep it. Keep it. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Keep it means to obey it. See, God has called us to apply the truth of his word. He's not after information overload, but transformation overload. We, you know, we live in a world today where there's information on our fingertips. I mean, every morning I wake up, I have tens or 20 times the amount of posts that I should be getting. Messages about read this article, read this video, watch this, what's this. And if I don't even have that, I can just Google something and in minutes I have information. I can just learn anything by Just YouTubing something, Googling something, everything is there. But you see, (laughs) if all of this is just information that we gather, and it does not transform me in any way for the glory of God, it is of no value. No value. It doesn't matter if you have degrees or masters in theology, if you have done Christian courses online, or have a ton of commentaries and books on Christendom. If the knowledge does not transform you, it's all been in vain. Are you a different spouse? Are you a different kind of spouse, or a different kind of parent, or employee, or friend, because of your faith? Do the others see the difference in your life without you introducing yourself as a Christian? Jesus says, keep it, obey. You know, I heard this uh, illustration somewhere, uh, and the illustration goes like this, where, you know, parent asks the kid, hey, go clean up your room. Um, After a day, the parent comes back and says, hey, so did you uh, clean up your room? And the kid's like, well, not really. But here's what I did. I wrote up your command to clean up the room. I meditated on it. In fact, I made a devotion. You know, you know what? I actually have a, a, a thesis on the different ways you can clean up your room. In fact, I've drawn out what the room could look like if it was cleaned up. And you know what? I've gone a step further. I've learned it in our own mother tongue. Imagine if you are the parent. Clean up your room. Clean up your room. Obey. And we can have all these studies, we can do all of that, but if we don't apply what God's Word has called us to do, we're not keeping it. Christ doesn't just want us to remember His commandments, but keep His commandments. And the last one is repent. You see, the last exhortation is to repent, and the New Testament uses the word repent, always meaning a a change of thinking for the better. Repentance implies a change of life, complete shift in attitude. It's not your, I'm sorry. You know, as Canadians, we say that so often. Maybe not as Canadians even, but we just so, hey, I'm sorry, you bumped into me, I'm sorry. No, it's not that. <laughs> you know, it's, 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 it's a change in lifestyle. True repentance means that there will be a difference. And so Christ is "Repent." He doesn't just want you to go, you know, go in and pray and say, Lord, I'm sorry, and walk away as one changed. No, there has to be change. He wants the Christians at Sardis to completely change their thinking and orientation about their sin. And to repent means to embrace humility. It means to embrace humility. You know, you have to embrace the fact that you were wrong in your thoughts. Attitudes or words or action. Repentance doesn't just mean repentance before God, but before your brother or sister when you've sinned against them. It requires humility. So wake up. Strengthen what remains. Remember, keep it, and repent. And he warns them. He says, if you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. You see, Sardis had never been taken captive as a city by direct assault. However, twice in history, 549 B.C. and around 200 B.C., it had been conquered and its leader deposed by enemies who found a chink in the armor and were able to scale the cliffs and find a way into the city through a small access hole in the wall. In both cases, while the city slept In the knowledge that its gates were secure, the citizens of Sardis awoke to find that they were under a surprise attack. In 549, Cyprus captured Sardis by sending a climber up a crevice. And in in, in around 200, Lagoras of Crete had led 15 men through the same entry point, opened the gates of the city from within, and allowed the armies of Antiochus the Great to capture the sleeping city. In poetry and wisdom literature of the day, Sardis had become synonymous with the dangers of overconfidence, pride, and arrogance. The history of Sardis demonstrated the need to be aware of enemies and to be aware of our Lord Jesus, he says, like a thief in the night, he would come. The Lord says, if you do not heed my correction." I will visit you like a thief. No, you know, we tend to have, uh, you know, when we look, when we read the Gospels in the New Testament, you see the, the reference of thief and we kind of feel comfort because we think, oh, like a thief, it's going to be like a twinkling in an eye, you know, the rapture and the second coming and we, we state all that. But listen, th- there's not, I- in all instances, there's a judgment with that coming. When has, uh, when has someone being robbed ever been a good thing? When has been visited by a thief been a good thing? They come when you do not expect it. They don't book an appointment with you. They take what is precious to you. They don't break in and take the waste that is to be thrown out the next day. They leave behind destruction in their activity, and there is but heartache. There is no rejoicing in the event of a thief coming. And Christ says he will come against the church at Sardis, the dying church. Here comes the commendation. Christ says, those who remain faithful are promised that they will walk with Christ in white because they're worthy. We have this verse here that says, yet you have still a few names in Sardis. You have a few names in Sardis. People who have not soiled their garments. And they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. See, their identification with Christ in this life will lead to identification and fellowship with him in the next. Their worthiness consists precisely in they not having soiled their garments which together are the basis of the future reward of walking with Christ in unsoiled clothes. These are the ones who have persevered and are alive. They are worthy in that they are willing to follow the model of Jesus who was considered worthy because he endured suffering on account of his faithful testimony. And Christ goes on to say this, The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. And I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. See, there are three promises reinstated by Jesus to the believer. Three promises reinstated by Jesus to the believer. First, the believer will be clothed in white. Now, this is a language of purity. It also symbolizes victory. Back in that day, citizens would wear White clothing in a Roman triumphal procession. It's a victory to the overcomer. There will be a white robe that will be placed. Second, Jesus reaffirms the fact that he will never blot out the names that are in the book of life. This is a record of those who will inherit eternal life. Eternal life is given to the true believers in Jesus of the heavenly city. Once your name is in the book, it stays in the book. Third, Jesus will confess the believer's name before the Father. Those who acknowledge and confess Christ, Christ w- his will confess His name before the Father and before the angels. In Matthew and in, in Luke, in Matthew 10, 32 and Luke 12, verse 8, you see the references where Christ says, everyone who acknowledges me Before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. And Luke 12 verse 8 says, The Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. And John brings it here where Christ will acknowledge before God the Father and the angels. Those who acknowledge Christ before men. I think that's a hint. That's a hint to us that when God confesses our names, when when Christ confesses our names to God the Father and the angels, there's a high likelihood, in fact, it's 100% probability that we have confessed his name before men here. So the true believer confesses the name of Jesus before men. Wake up. Strengthen what remains. Remember, keep his commandments and repent. Tony Evans had this uh, illustration. A brilliant young piano player was giving his very first concert. As the final chord of his flawless performance reverberated in the hall, the audience rose to its feet and broke out in thunderous applause. Only one member of the audience remained seated, clapping politely, but without particular enthusiasm. Tears welled up in the young piano player's eyes, and his head drooped slightly as he left the stage in utter defeat. Now, the stage manager was in the great hall, and he was a sensitive and observant man, had noticed the lone gentleman and saw how cool the response was and how that cool response affected the star performer. Son, he said, you're a hit. Everyone was overwhelmed. The critic from the the, the Times was in tears. By morning, you'll be famous. Don't let one guy let you down. You don't understand, the dejected young man replied. That man was my piano teacher. It only matters what he thinks. Brothers and sisters, in the end, it is of eternal importance what our Lord Jesus Christ thinks of us. He who has a ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to NLBC. Father, we... we thank you for your kindness over us as a church, over us as individuals. Our gratitude should know no end. We are so privileged to have your precious word to light up our lives, to give us eyes of wisdom that warns us that commands us and asks us to change for the good. And Father, we pray that the word that was proclaimed today, we are aware it would not come back void. And so we pray, Father, work in our hearts that, Lord, we are forgetful people. You know that. We pray that we would not forget your word, that we would wake up, we would strengthen That we would remember and we would keep. And that in this process we would repent. Father, we pray for your spirit to work in our lives. For your glory. For in the most precious and awesome name of our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ. We pray this.